Good morning, and I too greet you in Jesus' name, and uh, we're glad for your presence here this morning. Certainly a good Sunday school lesson, and I look forward to more from God's Word. If you want to, you can turn to James uh, chapter 1. The uh, impetus for this this um, message this morning um, goes back to last week's Sunday school dis- discussion a bit. Last year, or not last year, last Sunday, we were we were talking a little bit about Jesus and his temptation, the origin of sin, um, when sin actually is committed, and I had suggested that uh, as I had processed that, that perhaps sin is committed when sin is committed. Well, I want to I want to suggest that I have somewhat adjusted my perspective on uh, on that particular statement. And um, I um, I did some reading, I did some uh, reflection, I looked through God's Word this week, and I would like to share with you uh, what I have gleaned as far as uh, the Christian relating to sin. So this is maybe somewhat of a of a heavier topic, maybe not uh, so much inspirational as informational, and. Um, Hopefully we can uh, we can get some inspiration from it as we as we look at this. So I would just like to uh, read these very familiar verses here in James chapter one. Uh, we referred to them last Sunday, and I'm going to read them again. James chapter one and verse thirteen. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So I would like to look at five five different things here uh, this morning in regard to the Christian relating to sin. I would like to look, number one, at the predictable steps that lead to sin. I would like to look at how the Bible defines sin. I would like to uh, look at the question, are all sins equal? Number four, what do I do when I sin? And then how do I live above sin? Now, we won't spend copious quantities of time on any of those points, but I want to just kind of bump through that those five things this morning and um, and see what we can learn from that. So if you notice here in James, there's definitely a a, a a process here that James lays out that will ultimately um, ultimately will lead to sin. And I, I debate if I'm going to do this, but I guess I will. I'm, I'm not much of a drawer, but we're going to try here this morning because I think a diagram is somewhat helpful on this subject. So here it says we have temptation. And down here we have something called lust. I'm going to call it dormant lust, okay? So here in James, it says that we are tempted when we are drawn away by our own lust and enticed. So if you have this, if you have this line here, um, we're going to make, make a big, long line here. And it seemed to me that here are the first two steps. We have step one, step two. We have a temptation that comes... And inside of us, we have what I'm calling dormant lust, the possibility to respond to that temptation. So James says that at some point, lust conceives. Well, if you're going to have a conception of something, 
Two things must come together. We understand biology enough to know that, that in, in, the, uh, in the people world, in the mammal world, if you have conception, you have a sperm and an egg that comes together, and you have a new entity that, is, uh, that comes from that. So we're going to say, as far as it, my conclusion is, that when temptation and dormant lust come together, and those two things connect, you have a conception of something, and James calls that sin. So that's where, that's where that happens. And I am going to further suggest that that always takes place first in the mind. Differently than what I said last week, it, it indeed has to start there. Those two things come together, and, and our lust gives into that temptation, and we begin to, um, we begin to, uh, what should I say, entertain or, um, uh, consider this particular thing, and we roll this around in our minds, all right? So, step four, okay, let, let, let's, uh, let's talk, let's just stop here a second, and I want to talk a little bit more about, um, conception. In, in the early stages of conception, um, me and the, in the world of milking cows, we, we check our cows for pregnancy um, at about 30, 35 days. And generally, the vet can tell if the cow is pregnant at that point. But he always says that the, that, um, the odds of the cow uh, aborting that pregnancy is substantially less after 60 days. So even in that, even in that um, 30 to 60 days, there still is a, a higher than what we would like possibility that, that that fetus will be aborted. Under 30 days, it can happen and we never know it. There's many pregnancies that take place that we never even know about. It is aborted and we don't even know it. And so my, my point is that at the early stages of sin, if we recognize it for what it is, we can more easily abort it than we can when it is out here. All right? Now, in this particular area, from here to here, there's a process that I can't really even totally um, explain, but I'm going to say that there are, there are stages. All right? So there, there's a stage here, maybe, and then a stage here, and a stage here. And what's happening in here is... Um, um, we, we have the voice of conv conviction, we have the patience of God, and we have our own will all kind of wrapped up in here, all right? And as, if we, if, as we continue down this road, the voice of God weakens, um, conviction weakens. I believe at some point the patience of God actually begins to wane. And finally over here we have a full-blown commission of the sin, all right. When that when that happens, it says it says in James that it bringeth forth death. All right. So there's two words here I want you to look at. Yet it talks about the. Where does it say this again? It says when lust conceives, it bringeth forth sin. All right. That, that leads me to believe that there's maybe different stages because the, the bringeth word means that it's, it's continuing. It's bringing something forth. It's continually giving something. And when it says it bringeth forth death, that tells me that there's even different stages of death over here. 
So I think um, I think there's spiritual death takes place. I think that there is um, um, something takes place in the mind. The, in, in Romans, it talks about a reprobate mind. Something happens whenever that voice of God ceases to call inside of us, and and things get twisted enough that Isaiah says there's a time comes when we call evil good and good evil. We're so messed up that uh, it, it, our, our minds aren't even aren't even worth anything anymore. Um, I think there is a, a death of conscience. We can we can sin to a point where our conscience just does not bother us anymore, and that's a bad place to be in. And ultimately, it leads to physical death. So it bringeth forth death. So we have it bringeth forth sin and bringeth forth death. So there's, there's these different stages. I would say that these this this particular. Um, um, place in here where um, where I, I'm talking about the different stages and stuff, those things are not easily defined. I can't, I don't think any of us can necessarily tell when, when, um, when God gives a person over, say, or when God's patience is exhausted. I think God is a very long-suffering person. Um, I, I, I don't know when that is, but it does seem that it would be scriptural to to um, at least assume that at some point that happens. Now, when, when, when the sin is committed, it's a little like when that pregnancy um, uh, brings forth a calf, all right? <laughs> it's there. I mean, it's, it's a whole new thing that we got to deal with now. It's a whole lot different getting rid of a calf when it's there and, and it's an alive thing running around than it is whenever that conception has just taken place. As a matter of fact, there's been some times that there's been a conception that I didn't want. I remember one time this happened to a heifer, and uh, she got bred way too young by uh, an animal around there, and so we had to terminate that pregnancy. And there's, there's ways you can do that with drugs and so on. But as I was discussing with the, this with the vet, you got to get on that pretty quick because if you don't, that becomes exponentially harder to get that that animal to shake that thing. And so, the the, the whole thing is equally the same in w- what's behind me. If we can take care of our problems here, I shouldn't even call it a problem. Our sin there, we have a lot better. Um, Things will go much more well for us than if we start taking care of it over here. Those things become exponentially more of a problem. Jesus, um, when he was here on earth, he did have a, um, a, or I should say his audience had an aha moment one day there when he was talking to him, and he said, you know, you have heard that it has been said that thou shalt not kill, but I say you shouldn't even hate. He said, you have heard it has been said that you shouldn't commit adultery. I say you shouldn't even look in lust, he says. And so as I, re- as I thought through that, I really think that was a new idea for the audience that day. As I thought through the Ten Commandments, I thought, was there any of the Ten Commandments that would be a, a sin of the mind, let's say? And I landed on one. I think the sin of covetousness would be. He said, thou shalt... Or in the in the um, in the Ten Commandments, there's one that says, "Thou shalt not covet." And to covet something means that I look with inappropriate desire upon that thing, and I really, really want it. So, put 
taking that all together, uh, not belaboring that much more, Jesus surely does imply that act one of any sin does indeed begin in the heart. Even though in the time of the law, punishment was largely based on the full-blown expression of the, of the sin. And so, in the Old Testament, I suppose it would have been possible to um, commit a sin in the mind uh, for quite a long time, and if you never acted upon that, there was no punishment for it. All right, let's, let's leave that. Let's go to the second one here. So how does the Bible define sin? And what I was looking for when I looked through Scripture, I was looking for specific statements where it says, this thing is sin. And, I'm not, and I don't think I have an exhaustive, um, an exhaustive list here, but I do have a few things that the Bible specifically says is sin. The first one comes from Proverbs 24, verses 8 and 9. I have two from the Old Testament, the rest are from the New And it goes like this, He that deviseth to do evil shall be called a mischievous person. The thought of foolishness is sin, and the scorner is an abomination to men. I'm going to read that in another translation. It maybe helps us out a little bit. He who plans to do evil will be called a mischief maker. The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to men. Now, In the Old Testament, and maybe even in the New, um, it is not totally uncommon for folly to be interchangeable with the word sin. And I'll give you a couple examples. In in the case of Achan, when he had done his sinning, and it was they were doing all the, the lot casting and figuring out who had done this, Joshua at one point said to Achan, he said, you have wrought folly in in Israel. Well, this was far beyond folly, wasn't it? He had sinned, but but um, Joshua had called that folly there. Samuel told the same thing to Saul. He said, you have done foolishly in sacrificing those um, those animals that day. And Aaron, um, in, the, uh, in the case of where Aaron and Miriam rose up against Moses, and there was leprosy broke out on, on Miriam there, if you remember there in, in Numbers 12. Suddenly, Aaron and Miriam realized what they had done. They realized they had sinned. And here's what Aaron said. Alas, my Lord, and he's re- addressing Moses. He said, I beseech thee, lay not the sin upon us wherein we have done foolishly and wherein we have sinned. So I think I make my case that This particular uh, passage in Proverbs, if we are plotting a plan to sin, that's sin, right? The the very plotting of it is sin. All right, let's go to uh, the second one, and, and this is again in Proverbs. A high look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked is sin. I don't know if you've ever just thought through that, that apparently... If a person is not a Christian and he's plowing, that's sin. Have you ever thought through that? Like, how is that? Well, I looked at several other translations to see how it was translated otherwise, and I found this interesting. And this is probably because the of the texts that the various translations pull from whenever they're writing. But here's how two other translations put it. It says, haughty eyes and a proud heart and the lamp 
of the wicked is sin. We're not going to belabor long on this, but let's just let's just put it this way. When you think of something being a lamp, you think of a of a light that you have to guide your path, right? Now, without getting into the weeds, it's easy for us to look at society and and understand how that the light that much of society is using to light their path is way off course. It's not doing much good. The light of the wicked doesn't light the path anymore. It's, it's leading us way into the weeds. As far as the plying of the wicked, um, I guess I would just comment like this. Um, we all have a reason for doing what we're doing. And the goal of a, of a Christian, of a regenerate person, should be to whatever he's doing, if he's plowing, if he's milking his cows, if he's wiring somebody's barn, if he's trucking somebody's whatever, his the ultimate reason he's doing that is because he wants to do it for the glory of God. He wants those proceeds. He wants that witness. Everything is bound around glorifying God in some way. But we can have other reasons for doing something. We can do it for our own selfish reasons. And that's exactly what happened to the rich man there that Jesus gave the parable about, that he had all this, this wheat or whatever it was, and he said, what should I do? Well, he could have sold that, and he could have given it to the poor. He could have done different things, but he said, no. He said, I'm going to build down my barns. I'm going to build bigger ones, and I'm going to store it. And I'm going to say to myself, soul, you have much goods laid up for many years. I'm going to spend that on myself. See, the whole thing was he was, he was a little bit um, uh, foolish in his plans. All right, let's leave that. Um, I think we understand that. Let's go to the third one in Romans 14, 23. Now, in Romans 14, this this passage is talking about two brothers in a church. The one says, I'm not comfortable eating meat, unclean meat. The other one says, I'm comfortable doing that. And the one that's uncomfortable says, I'm going to stick with vegetables. I'm just going to eat vegetables. And 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 Paul goes through that thing there, Romans, and he lays out how there, while there's nothing really wrong with the meat eater, he should be careful that he doesn't offend the vegetable eater with his eating of meat. And it's, a, it's quite a thing. And when you get to the end of the end of the chapter there, it says, He that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. <laughs> now, I really, I really, that, that whole passage kind of stumped me a little bit. And here is where I landed, and if you have further explanation on this, I would be very happy to hear. But what we're talking about here is a man with a conscience problem. He can't eat meat, and he's going to stick with vegetables. The other guy doesn't have a, a conscience problem with the meat. And Paul's actually saying that really he, it's okay if he does it. But he says, don't do it and offend the guy that's eating his uh, beans over here. See? And then he's addressing the guy that's eating beans, and he says, if you eat that meat, you're not doing it in faith, and you could be damned because of that. Now, I really went around and around and around on that. Now, how do I bring that all together? I believe here's where I have concluded. This is what I concluded Paul is saying. He's saying, if I have a conscience on something, you know, just name it. Think, think about what that might be for you. If I have a conscience against something, 
But it isn't necessarily spelled out in scriptures that this is necessarily wrong. But you still have a conscience on it for some reason. For me, just to trample roughshod over that conscience is not wise. That is not a faith. If I'm going to, if I am going to um, do a thing that I have for some reason developed some sort of a conscience against, I had better sit down and study long and hard and figure out why I'm doing this. And when I'm completely done, I best not have any twinge of conscience about that. Now, I, I don't know. That's where, where I land on it. Um, to boil it down, to disregard my conscience is not wise. It, that is not a wise thing. That is not a faith. And we could get into hypotheticals. We could get into all kinds of things here that I'm not sure I have answers for. I'd be happy to discuss it with you if you really want to. I'm not going to right now. Let's just say that disregarding conscience is at least in some cases sin. It's not a faith. All right, let's go on to the fourth one. That is in James chapter 4. I'm sorry, James 4.17. A very elementary verse. Therefore, to him that knoweth to, good, to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Another translation says, Whoever knows what is right to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, that's a, that's a very easy verse to understand. You and I are accountable to God for the level of understanding that we currently have. Uh, you and I are blessed people, I'm going to say. We have been taught many good things. And uh, we have been taught beyond what we deserve and beyond what many of our neighbors know, right? And when we are further exposed to an error in our practice or thinking, and that's possible, that um, that I could be exposed to that, you could be too, we have a choice to make. We have exposure. We now know one more step of something to do good. And if we choose not to do that, that becomes sin to us. We have two good examples of that in the New Testament. We have the rich young ruler. He had done a lot of good. And as far as he knew, he was living up to the law. And Jesus said, I have one more thing for you. And the rich young ruler said, I can't do it. Now, it doesn't specifically say that became sin to that man, but it certainly implies that he made a very poor choice when he chose not to sell his goods and follow Jesus. Another example is um, is uh, Apollos. He's preaching the baptism of John, and this is after Jesus has come, he has died, he has rose again, and Apollos is still stuck back there preaching about John. And Aquila and Priscilla heard him, and hey, they took him into, into their house, and they said, uh, look, um, we have more things to tell you, and it's much better. So Apollos, he had new, he had new exposure. And what did he do? He readily, heartily embraced that. Aquila and Priscilla um, were good people, and they did a good job expounding to Apollos. And he went out, and he began to preach Jesus. See, he was exposed to something much better. And rather than sin, he, um, he did what he needed to do. All right, let's go on to the um, to the next one. The fifth one comes from 1 John 3, 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. 
Well, that's another very, very, very easy uh, verse to understand. We like it when it's that way. When there is a legitimate law from any authority in my life, whether that's spiritual or civil or parental or you name it, there's a legitimate law from this authority. And I intentionally break that law for no good reason. I do this. I've thought through it. I broke it. That's sin. That's what this, this verse is saying. And lastly, the sixth one, um, again, a very, very easy statement. I like the book, book of 1 John for this reason. 1 John 5.17, all unrighteousness is sin. Now, that captures a lot. Does anybody want to give me a, a definition for unrighteousness? What all would go in that basket of unrighteousness? Well, it's, it's kind of hard to define in some ways to give it, um, you know, an, an easy three-word definition. But we kind of know when something is unrighteous, don't we? we, we it's the opposite of righteous. That's helpful, isn't it? Uh, we sort of know what is righteous and what is unrighteous. I put it, I, I concluded this way. In unrighteousness is any action that is against God's moral expectations of man. And, and that, that would be a wide array of application, attitude, and expression. All right, so we're going to leave that. Now let's go to the, uh, the next part, and that is the question, are all sins equal, or are there different classes of sins? Now, that seems like an easy question, but I found it a little bit more difficult than what uh, I was anticipating as I looked into it. So let's establish this first. Sin is sin, okay? Sin is sin. And sin creates some kind of a barrier between God and I that has to be dealt with. So, remember, sin starts here, and, it, and, and, and we have these different commission stages or whatever, but sin is sin, way back at conception, just like a fetus is a fetus, whether it's two weeks old or whether it's eight and a half months old. It is still a fetus, all right? So, the Bible does suggest that there are some sins that are significantly more consequential than others. And I'm just going to read some verses that I believe would point that out. Now, in 1 John 5.16, it says like this, If any man see a brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for that sin not unto death. Then it says, there is a sin unto death. I do not say he shall pray for it. And then verse 17 says, all unrighteousness is sin, but then it goes on to say, and there is a sin not unto death. Now, I'm not going to go into a, a long exegesis on that particular two, those two particular two verses, but I will say this. There seems to be strong suggestion that there is apparently some difference in the sins that we sin. Now, just hold on. I said all sin is sin, and I get that, but there's a little bit of a difference, and I'm going to try to explain that right now. If you go into Ephesians 4 and verse 22, in the preceding verses, we're not going to read it for lack of time, but jot it down and read it. Paul is basically saying, if we know Jesus, we will put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. 
All right. So when he talks about putting off, it seems to me that he's talking about something that we're going to kind of daily work at. We're going to put it off. You know, this thing's going to crop up and we're going to put it off. Now, Hebrews 12, 1, a very familiar verse as well. It says, we should lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us. Now, in another translation, it puts it like this. The sin that so easily clings to us or clings to us so closely. I'm suggesting this morning that each one of us has some kind of unrighteousness that is maybe particular to us. There's, there's maybe a particular character trait we have or, or something that there's a, there's a certain sin that maybe I struggle more with than you struggle with. Or maybe you have one that you struggle with that maybe I don't as much. It, but it's that, that, that sin that clings close to us. And it's uniquely personal. I believe there's also a broadly common bucket, if you will, of sins that, that we need a, to, to daily put off. And I'm thinking about things like worry. Is worry sin? Well, we can certainly kind of develop into that, can it? Worry, uh, maybe things like anger. Maybe things as uh, silly as just talking too much. Maybe prayerlessness. Thinking unholy thoughts. Gossip. And you can add to that bucket. That's just a few that came to my mind. But these are sins that... I don't know where else we put them except in, in the bucket of sin. But it's something we daily maybe grapple with, or, or more, more regularly, easily clinging to us, easily easily falling into. Now, I'm going to read you some verses where the communication seems to be much stronger. And this comes from Galatians, Ephesians, and 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians says this, Know ye not that the, uh, that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And then it says, Be not deceived, which indicates that we could be deceived. Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now that's plain language, easy to understand. You do these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You won't. Now, I'm going to read two more lists, and I want you to catch the strong language and the similarity of the lists. Ephesians 5.3, but fornication and all uncleanness, and that would be along the moral lines, or covetousness, that would mean an unbridled lust for more. Now, notice what it says. Let it not once, let it not one time be named among you, not once, as become a saint's. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting. Now, I want to stop there a second. Sometimes we um, we maybe uh, misthink mis- this in our minds a little bit. If you look up each one of those phrases by themselves, the, the uh, connotation certainly is, again, along the moral lines. Filthy talking, filthy joking, that sort of thing. Which is not convenient or fitting, but rather giving of thanks. And here he goes into it again. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, 
hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, which means again, you might be deceived, but don't let that happen. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. I don't know how the language could get any clearer. Now let's go to Galatians yet. And notice again the similarity. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these? Deja vu all over again. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Paul saying, I, I got a list here, but I'm not saying there couldn't be more that could be added to that list. But things like this, he's saying, of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, these readings would certainly suggest that when one commits these sins, it is of notable damage to one's soul. And I'm going to read one more verse out of 1 Corinthians, and this comes from 1 Corinthians 6.18, and um, is maybe a helpful verse as well. It says, Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Again, I'm not going to do a long exegesis on that, except to say that this indicates that there is a significantly enhanced repercussion about this particular sin. And then the worst one comes in Matthew 12:31. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven men. Again, that's not my topic this morning to necessarily identify what that is, but that sounds a whole lot worse than gossip. Do I dare say that? Or at least the repercussions are worse. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Just a few concluding observations on these verses. Number one, all sin separates from God. Let's get that clear. But I believe some sins produce more collateral damage to us and others and puts us in a place where ridding ourselves of these particular sins takes real focus and an intentional yeah, focus. And from these lists, I would say that immoral addictions seem particularly damaging and binding in a person's life. Um, strongholds, if you will. My second conclusion is that the act of a particular sin needs to be dealt with in a different way than the thought of the sin. And I, I go back to Galatians where Paul says, they that do such things. And he doesn't use the word think necessarily. Now it starts with thinking, I'm not, not under, underestimating that, but, but eventually that thought goes to do. The, the uh, third conclusion I have is that there are sins of the heart that we can commit toward others that at the very least hinder our spiritual growth and at the worst keep us out of heaven that are based on my relationship and attitudes toward others that aren't easily recognized. And I pull this conclusion from Matthew 6.14 
where Jesus said, if you forgive men their trespasses, and if you look that up, it has to do with sins, grievances, um, things done against you, or that you, you hold somebody else in contempt for. It says, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. I'm sorry, your heavenly Father will also forgive you if we forgive men their trespasses. But it says, if we do not forgive men their trespasses, our Father will not forgive our trespasses. From that, I I conclude that sins of the heart, such as bitterness, unforgiveness, animosity, unkind thoughts, I'm putting myself in a very vulnerable, a very uh, problematic place to the point that um, I'm jeopardizing God's forgiveness to me when I do those things, I hold those things toward others. All right, let's leave that now. Let's go to the fourth part. What should I do when I sin? Well, 1 John 1, 9 has a very simple answer. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I believe that a regular, and I would even say daily, admission and confession to God of the sins that easily cling to us so closely is totally in order. But let's take this a little further. Do we just confess sin to God and that then it's all over? I would say to some degree the answer is yes, and in some cases the answer is no. Listen to two more verses here and, and then we'll flesh it out a little bit more. In first Timothy five twenty, first Timothy five twenty, Paul tells Timothy, Them that sin rebuke before all that others may fear. Now in the context it's specifically uh, talking about elders, which I believe is particularly consequential. When a when an elder is caught in a grievous sin or confesses to that, it, it has more significant consequence than if the person is not in a place such as that. In John twenty twenty three, Jesus says this, Whosoever's sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever's sins ye retain, they are retained. Now, I preached a, an entire message on this a while back. To boil it down, to summarize it, the verse suggests that there are times when there are, when spiritual authorities play some role in ex- assessing how a person will deal with sin in his life. Sometimes we are not in a good position to make that judgment. And that is why God has instituted the church to help us in these things, to give some guidance on how to to deal with things like this. That context of those verses there would suggest that God does honor these decisions when they are properly guided. Now, that's the big uh, caveat. If it's not properly guided, and if it, it these things, that particular verse, those those verses in their context can be abused. I'm not speaking of that. But I'm speaking when that is properly executed, I think it is totally in order for um, others besides ourselves to make some determination on the, on the grievousness of the sin committed and help us to find our way through uh, how, how we, we find forgiveness for that. In general, I would say this. We confess to the extent that the sin involves others. If it's a transgression of the mind, we have sinned against God and we confess to him. If the transgression is against or includes another person, the confession includes that person or persons. 
If the transgression is of significant moral consequence that is clearly identified in the scripture, then I believe the time comes where a confession to the brotherhood at the direction and discretion of the spiritual leadership is in order. And we go back to the retention and remission of sins. Now, I do want to say this. I'm not sure where this fits into this talk. But in these lists of sins uh, that, 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 we, that we, we talked about, we read that it says, you know, the, the works of the flesh are these. And it, it seems like it always starts out with adultery, fornication, uncleanness, kind of like the, that moral package. Does the sin, is the sin only committed when that act of fornication, let's just use that, is committed? Is that when the sin starts? Is that when it is this binding thing to us? I'm going to say that in sins of morality, that, the binding of that thing and the, 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 the darkness it can bring to our souls, I think starts back here somewhere. There are lines we cross, and we and we um, systematically eliminate ourselves from the light of God when we start crossing those lines that we know, and we we are going into territory that we have no business going into. And finally, at some point, we cross over the finish line, if you will. But I do believe the 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 sin, to a greater extent, starts back back the line at some point. I think there's an important counterpoint I want to bring out here, too. There are times when I think the devil likes to whoop things up. And here again is where it's helpful to have guidance. Um, you know, to get an objective insight into this particular sin is helpful. Perhaps perhaps um, it's not, and hear me when I'm saying this, it's not as bad as we think it is. Um, I hope you understand in the context what I'm what I'm saying there. But sometimes we just need an objective person to speak into our lives that does not have emotion tied up into it. That can be very helpful. And um, if in doubt, I would just say seek counsel on that. We certainly do not want to develop an unhealthy uh, concept of God, where God's up there with a big pencil, and he's writing in our name, and then we sin, and he flips it around, and he erases our name, and he's writing our name, erasing our name, and his eraser's as big as his pencil, and... That's a very unhealthy uh, concept of God. Think of God more like this. He is a father. And he, he extends love and, and understanding and, and forgiveness to us. And the last thing he wants to do is take that eraser and erase that name. He doesn't want to do that. He will do that. We have scripture to support that. But let's not, let's think of God as more of a father. Think about how you relate to your children. I mean, do you want to just lash out on them as soon as they misbehave a little bit? Of course not. We want them to to grow up, and so we chasten them, right? Um, again, uh, maybe a conversation is too long for this um, particular talk, but don't think of God <clears throat> as an angry entity that just can't wait to lash out upon us. All right, we're going to just quickly wrap this up. How can I live above sin? How can I overcome it? I'm just going to give you some verses. I'm not going to elaborate long on them. 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth 
cleanseth us from all sin. It is an ongoing process. It is a day-by-day thing. But if we say we have no sin, we kid ourselves. We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Listen, let's just admit it. We do these things at times, don't we? We have besetting sins. We do not attain sinless perfection. But we can daily walk in the light. And the more we practice walking in the light, the less that sin will cling to us, I, I do believe. Number two, and I think this verse is of particular value, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I realize I'm pulling that verse out of context. But the devil wishes to have you think you are all alone. And that is not true. That is why we have accountability. That's why it is important that somebody else prays for us and with us. Those things are important. And I think that is a tool that is underused and undervalued. Number three. Flee also youthful lust, 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee also youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call out of the Lord, call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Easy verse to understand. Surround yourself, surround myself frequently with people that have a positive influence on our life. This is very, very critical. And the Hebrew writer uh, gives us one way we can do this. He says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhort one another. How can we exhort one another if we're not together? We need to do that, don't we? Um, and by the way, that, that word exhorting, I always usually thought of that as some stern preacher up here pointing his finger. Actually, exhorting is not that. Exhorting has more the idea of encouraging. And, and we need that, don't we? We need to encourage one another. And number five, Romans 12, 9b, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. You know, the more we look with disgust upon sin and the things that lead us to sin, the more we will cleave to the things that are good. And lastly, 1 John five eighteen, we know that whoever is born of God sinneth not. But he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. Now that verse just at a quick reading would almost indicate that if we're Christians, we never sin. That's not what it's saying. It is saying that when we are begotten of God, and we keep ourselves in the hand of God, we walk in the light, we love our brothers, we abhor the evil, we do our part God keeps us in his hand, and he will not allow that wicked one to take us. It's, it's, it's like the verse in Corinthians says, that we cannot be tempted above that which we are able. It is certainly God's will for each one of us to live a guilt-free life, a life that is free from sin, above the riffraff, and um, it's what God calls, or Jesus called, an abundant life. And I believe that can be the, the experience of each one of us this morning. And I pray, God, that that is the case for each of us this morning.